0: of those conversations after the service with tea and coffee or with soup, so. Before we get into God's Word this morning, let's pray. Jesus, we're gathered here today because of you, in your name, the name above every name. We pray that you might speak to us today through your Word. We pray that you might bless each and every one of us with the word that brings life. We pray that you will help us to take your word to heart and to live it and to be the people you made us to be, but resting upon the heart of your word to us, the heart of your gospel, which is your grace and your forgiveness to us which is how we're saved, that we have been forgiven and we look forward to life with you not because we get everything right, but because you paid the price for us. May we remember that every time we come to your word so that when your word calls us to live a certain way, we do it Out of gratefulness and thankfulness for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The passage we're going to start out today for those who want to follow along in your Bibles Numbers 5 11 to 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, so that another man has sexual relations with her, and this is hidden from her husband and her impurity is undetected, since there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act. And if feelings of jealousy come over her husband, and he suspects his wife and she is impure, Or if he is jealous and suspects her, even though she is not impure. Then he is to take his wife to the priest. He must also take an offering of a tenth of an FR of barley flour on her behalf. He must not pour olive oil on it or put incense on it, because it is a grain offering for jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to wrongdoing. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. After the priest has had the woman stand before the Lord, he shall loosen her hair and place in her hands the reminder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings a curse. Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, If no other man has had sexual relations with you and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, may this bitter water that carries a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband and you have made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, here the priest is to put the woman under this curse. May the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people When he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. May this water that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells or your womb miscarries. Then the woman is to say, Amen. So be it. The priest is to write these curses on a scroll and then wash them off into the bitter water. He shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse and this water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering will enter her. The priest is to take from her hands the grain offering for jealousy, wave it before the Lord and bring it to the altar. The priest is then to take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial offering and burn it on the altar. After that, he is to have the woman drink the water. If she has made herself impure and been unfaithful to her husband, this will be the result. When she is made to drink the water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering, it will enter her, her abdomen will swell and her womb will miscarry and she will become a curse. If, however, the woman has not made herself impure but is clean, she will be cleared of guilt and will be able to have children." This, then, is the law of jealousy when a woman goes astray and makes herself impure while married to her husband, or when feelings of jealousy come over a man because he suspects his wife. The priest is to have her stand before the Lord and is to apply this entire law to her. The husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman will bear the consequence of her sin. That's a bit of a strange part of the Bible to begin our sermon with this morning. Where, Why I've included that one will hopefully become clear in time. We're not going to start off with how that ties in. While I've been tackling some rather difficult and controversial topics like we did last week, I decided what's one more? <laughs> so in light of Things that have happened in the news recently, some of you may have heard recently in America that uh, the Roe versus Wade decision in the Supreme Court of America uh, was overturned. Now, what that means, the the original decision by the Supreme Court of America essentially made it, the, the, the standard was that it was against the Constitution of America to introduce or to enforce any bill that banned uh, the practice of abortion. So the overturning of this, um, of this precedent doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, it, it doesn't mean abortion is banned or anything like that, but it, it opens up the possibility that some of these things might happen in certain states in America. It sort of gives the states the, op- op- the ability to make their own laws in this area. Now, my sermon is not all about you know Roe versus Wade and, and all of those sort of things, but it just got me thinking a bit about this whole issue of abortion, of the pro life and the pro choice movements and what it means for us as Christians and and what we should what the Bible tells us, first of all, about this issue. And secondly, what we should do about what the Bible tells us. Before I go any further, statistically speaking, someone in this room has had an abortion. Now that may not be the case, it may be the case, but statistically speaking, and we know that this is a very painful topic for some people. So I want to make it Just abundantly clear at the top of the service. This is today's message is not about condemnation, not from me, not from God, and not from you. Not no self condemnation. I will be teaching that abortion is wrong, that it's contrary to what God's law tells us, to the way God calls us to live. But the gospel is a message of absolute grace. The gospel reminds us that there's nothing somebody has done that cannot be forgiven by the love and the grace of God. We know even the man who wrote just about half of the New Testament killed Christians. God doesn't put a limit on what he can forgive. And we'll do well to remember that in all of this that we're discussing, even though I know, as I said, that this can be a very painful subject for some. Jesus knew how much and how seriously each and every one of us would go astray, would sin against him and go our own way. And he chose to give his life for us, to offer us his love and his forgiveness and an end to all guilt and condemnation. So that's really just something I want to make sure we keep in our our minds through this whole discussion of what the Bible teaches about abortion and what we should do about it. But I want to start with the question, does the Bible speak against abortion? Now I think, you know, in, in most churches we would say, yes, obviously. But the difficulty is, The word abortion doesn't appear in the Bible. And yes, abortion was known in the world in the time when the Bible was written. In ancient times it was particularly common for um, people to take certain um, concoctions that were known to be able to cause the woman to miscarry. Uh, And... Uh, you know, certain... I didn't actually look into what sort of plants and things they used, but it was something that was within their capacity to do in the ancient world. This is not a modern world issue, necessarily. And because the word abortion doesn't appear in the Bible, there are certain scholars that argue that the Bible is pro-choice, that life begins at birth, that... um, a hum- the, the unborn do not have the same level of rights as those who are born. And the evidence uh, for that is Numbers 5, which I read out at the beginning of the service, and this one, from Exodus 21, 22 to 23. And it's important that we consider these arguments If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, then there is no serious injury. The offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. Now, you look at that and you think, that doesn't seem like it's a pro-choice argument, saying that, that life in, begins at birth. But if we look at what the way the NASB puts it, when people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that there is a miscarriage and yet no further harm follows, the one responsible shall be fined what the woman's husband demands, paying as much as the judges determine. If any harm follows, then you are to give life for life. Now you can see there's a difference between giving birth prematurely but there's no injury and... Uh, a miscarriage. And the difficulty is one of obscure Hebrew terms that there, there's some confusion about exactly how to uh, put that across properly. So do these passages show that the killing of the unborn is not a sin? That, life, that the life of the unborn does not enjoy the same rights as of those who are born? I think this is a question we need to be able to have an answer to. Uh, I, I imagine most of us feel like the answer would be, no, those things aren't an argument for being pro-choice, but why not? Well, there are a couple of things that we should consider. God's law, even if this is the correct rendering of Exodus 21, and it is talking about a miscarriage, God's law has always differentiated between what was intentional and what was an accident. God's law clearly states that if you murder your neighbour, then you are to be put to death. But if it's what we would call manslaughter, you're working together in the fields and an accident happened and that person died. God's law says that person doesn't have to be put to death. And in the law they even made, uh, you know, set apart whole cities that were to be cities of refuge where people could go uh, if, if they were sort of uh, guilty of manslaughter, where they were to be protected and, and no um, kin of the, the one who died can come seeking vengeance there. And we see this verse here is very clearly talking about an accident. It's talking about where the intent was not to cause the child to die. But people being what people are, a couple of blokes get into a fight and an accident happens. So I don't think this, because it's not talking about an intentional case, I don't think we can take this one as an argument that the life of the unborn is any less protected by God and precious to God than any other human life. And what about Numbers 5? Where the woman who has uh, committed adultery and had a baby uh, as a result of that, or has a baby within her as a result of that, is to drink this bitter water that brings a curse, and if she has committed adultery, that would cause a miscarriage. Isn't that the Bible being in support of abortion? That's the argument, at least. And it is a very strange and a very difficult passage, and like when we looked at Leviticus, very far removed from our practice of worshipping God. It is true, God was very concerned within holy, about holiness within his community and about um, that, that sin did need to be dealt with. And so adultery was not something that God takes lightly. But at the end of the day, all that the woman drinks is water with a bit of dirt in it and a little bit of ink washed off in it. and and the sort of ink that they used in those days was like a very charcoal-y based type thing. There's nothing in that intrinsically, medicinally, that would cause a woman to miscarry. The point seems to be more that this would be, well, you know, God acting directly, an act of, of judgment happening directly if we know our old testaments well we might know that when David committed his sin with Bathsheba and Bathsheba became pregnant through that and the child died and God told David that the child was going to die do we consider that to be an argument that God is for abortion I think it's difficult to understand some of those things exactly. But the key ideas to take out of some of those places in the Bible is that when it comes to heaven and hell, when it comes to our eternal destination, it's all based on what each individual person has done. You won't go to heaven because your parent was a Christian and you weren't. You won't go to hell because your parent was a pagan, but you've become a Christian. But there are several things in this world where the sins of parents will affect their children. And we see that with David and Bathsheba. We see you know, generational things where, you know, even today, we see where children that have grown up in abusive households are more likely to become abusers themselves. Sin has a way of having consequences for next generations. Now those are some very challenging passages, but we do need to consider the best argument that can be made and then I think we consider it found wanting. Because the Bible is very clear that the taking of a human life is sin. Genesis 9, for your lifeblood I will demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by human shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. We're not supposed to kill each other. That wasn't part of God's good plan for the world. And of course, very short and sweet, in Exodus twenty thirteen, the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. So we're not to take a human life, but when does a human life begin? Psalm 139, 13 to 16. You created my inmost being. did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? Ecclesiastes 11 tells us, As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And then jumping into the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, talking about uh, the promise of the birth of John the Baptist. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. The unborn can even be filled with the Holy Spirit. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting. Jumping a little further ahead in time. The baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Throughout scripture there seems to be a consistent witness that life begins in the womb before we are born where God knits us together in the secret place as David put it in Psalm 139. We believe along with many of the um, Protestant denominations that neither a sperm nor an ovum is in and of itself intrinsically a human life. And so we support the you know, responsible use of contraception. And indeed the Bible, you know, as we look through it, it didn't say that we began in our father's loins but in our mother's womb. That's the witness consistently throughout and it matches what we know of science. you know that these the sperm and the ovum that would not you know do not last all that long in and of themselves but when they join together then something new is formed something with the potential or something that becomes and grows into a human life from that very beginning long long before the child is born and so i think with that spread even though there's no Thou shalt not have an abortion, written in the Bible. I do think that the Bible is clear that life begins at conception and that to kill a fetus is a sin. But what do we do with that knowledge in a world that disagrees? When I think of the words pro-life, those who uh, fight against abortion, I think of things like the March for Life, you know, the, um, the big sort of protest march. I think of the people outside the abortion clinics with their, with their posters. I think about political lobbying. So if we believe that the unborn are human lives made in the image of God, if we believe that we should be pro-life, is that what we should do? Join the March for Life and the political lobbying and the, the signs outside the... Well, actually, I think that's illegal now, the signs outside the abortion clinics, but... Is that the sort of things that, we took, that it means for a church or for Christians to be pro-life and to stand up for the unborn? Now, I confess, I used to think that those measures really achieved nothing. Uh, I used to think, you know, people have gone out protesting all of these things over all of these years and the laws around abortion have only got more and more lax. I am having to revisit that that attitude in the light of the things that are happening in America with this whole uh, issue around Roe versus Wade. But it does raise the question, is it right to try and legislate morality? Is it right for the church to try and force people uh, through the government, through the system of laws, not to sin? Should everything that is against God's law be against the laws of our nation? Straw poll. Should everything that is against God's law be against the laws of Australia? Is anybody feeling brave? Hands up if you think yes. Hands up if you think no. Hmm. I thank you for being brave. I think all of God's laws are good. I think a society that was founded on God's laws and kept them all would be a wonderful thing. But I don't necessarily think that everything that is a sin should be against the laws of our nation. Because in the New Testament, God's people are not a nation. In the Old Testament, the nation was the people of God. In the New Testament, the people of God are in and a part of all of the nations, but are not interchangeable with the nation around us. I think, well, I think of verses like this from 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. And from verses like that, I, I take it that it's not necessarily our job to make our society follow God's law. But, you, I think the right exercise of government is to protect the oppressed and the defenceless. I don't know that we should necessarily make things illegal that really only hurt the person that does it, because ultimately I think adults at least can make their own decisions and can live with the consequences. But I think it's a different question when it comes to acts that do uh, oppress and impact upon somebody else. And if the unborn is a human life with human rights then there can be no argument that abortion doesn't have a significant impact on them. I think there is a right I think it can be right to legislate morality as the saying goes. When sins directly harm others I think of you know, One of my real heroes of faith, William Wilberforce, and the years of, of his life spent campaigning to end slavery, bring the abolition of slavery, to, to stand for those who were defenceless and oppressed. And I think that's a good thing. Now, there is a whole other question about whether banning abortion is the best way to reduce the number of abortions, And in all honesty, that's not a question I have the answers to. And that's, I'm not up here to give all of my opinions about what might be the best in the world. I'm here to try to faithfully expound what I think Scripture tells us. So I can't argue whether I think banning abortions, you know, there there are questions raised about whether that's the best way to reduce abortions. And that's not an answer that I'll give you. But is it right and is it good for Christians to get involved in the pro-life, you know, the march for life, the the lobbying of the government, writing letters to your local member, all of those things? I think that absolutely can be a wonderful thing for Christians to do so long as we remember two things. Number one, we have to do it in the right way. People who have had abortions are not our enemies. Even people who are pro-choice and advocate for the right for abortion are not our enemies. Ephesians 4 tells us, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you uh, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. There are some pro-life groups that have lost sight of this. I think we've all come across those that seem to be almost thriving on scoring points against the people who disagree with us rather than winning hearts and souls. Just imagine, take the time to have some empathy, put ourselves in the shoes of a, let's say, young 21-year-old heading to an abortion clinic because their partner left them, and they don't think they can have this baby by themselves. And outside the abortion clinic, there's some there's some people marching around, uh, with, you know, repeating a mantra and holding up slogans that say, "Abortion is murder." Now, do these that person that's in that situation. Do they know that these people are pro-life, standing for the, the rights of the unborn? Yes, they do. Do they see in these people the love of God for sinners? Do they see in these people you know, the, the way that God has forgiven and loved us? Or to use the, the, um, the way that Paul put it in Ephesians 4, they see truth but not love. Speaking the truth in love. As opposed to if they saw some people there holding up signs with a picture of an ultrasound saying, every life is precious to God. See us if you need help. Is that a pro-life message? And does that show the truth in love? I think I I have absolutely no issue. Um, I I think it can be a great thing for people to be involved in things like the March for Life and and writing letters to to MPs and all of that stuff. If we're pro-life in a way that even those who who have had abortions would know that we love them. That if they saw our church doing pro-life things, they would still know that they are very welcome and loved here because people are not our enemies they're confused they've been sold a lie that this world is all there is and therefore anything that you know is a barrier to me having my best life now is something to be gotten rid of been sold a lie that it's nothing but a clump of cells been sold all sorts of lies that this is about Men trying to, you know, force things on, force uh, reproductive uh, uh, laws onto women's reproductive issues, rather than seeing it as people who are genuinely concerned for the rights of the unborn. There are a lot of lies out there, and people believe those lies, but that doesn't make them our enemies. It makes them people who need the truth spoken in love showing the love of Jesus, the kind of love that he could show to a woman who was caught in adultery, that said that he didn't condone her sin, but nor did he condemn her. So that's number one thing. If we're going to do that kind of political activism type, march for life, pro-life things, we have to do it the right way. And the second thing, my last thing for this morning, It can't be all we do. There's this idea that gets thrown in in the face of people who are pro-life all the time, that we're only pro-life up until the child is born, and then we don't really care. And that is a bit of a slander. I don't think that's true of most pro-life people. But there are some... and and particularly some of those angry protestory types that do give the impression that we care about the baby while it's in the womb, but do we care about it afterwards? If you're a right-to-your-MP sort of a person, don't just be anti-abortion. Write in favour of supporting mums that can't afford their baby that there would be support mechanisms so that people feel that they could make that choice to keep the baby, to push for mental health services for those who are in a bad place. Many abortions happen for that reason because of where their parents are at with their mental health and counsellors and psychologists are expensive. People need help to be able to access some of those things. If, you, you can, if you're writing to your MP, you can push for more of those post-birth services that will help people to be able to have their children and to keep them. And it would mean, as Christians, if we say we're pro-life and we're concerned about the rights of the unborn, it might mean having to be willing to pay more taxes rather than just punish those who go to have abortions because services like that don't happen without taxes. For you, being pro-life might mean nothing to do with that more political side of things. It could mean fostering or adopting and I know there are some in this church who have done that and what a wonderful uh, witness That is to the world of the value we place in the life of children. It is a huge commitment, not something to be entered into lightly, but it is a wonderful witness. Now, I've heard of churches that do things like making emergency meals uh, that they give to these uh, foster agencies, and then the foster agencies can distribute them to foster parents that, that just need an emergency meal at a time. i haven't had the chance to look into whether that's something we could do. But if it was, is that a way we could be pro-life? Being pro-life might mean uh, giving to our local community, supporting things like the community pantry and things like that. Helping to alleviate poverty in our communities. Now, I only have stats from the US, but in the US, 85% of women seeking abortions were unmarried and three-quarters of them were living below or not far above the federal poverty line. If we're pro-life, does that mean looking at helping those sort of people and thinking about how much of the gospel, how many times we see caring for the poor is a huge part of what Jesus calls us to do. But ultimately, being pro-life means loving people in such a way that if they were ever facing this huge decision, they were ever had a pregnancy they, they didn't expect and weren't sure if they could go through with, would they feel like they could talk about it with us? Would they know that we would love them through it all that we would stand and are we willing to go and stand against the lies of this world but speaking the truth in love let's pray Jesus we thank you for the incredible love with which you have loved us We thank you for that kind of love that you've shown to us. The same kind of love you showed to a woman who had been caught in adultery. You defended that woman against her accusers. You didn't condone her sins, told her to go and sin no more. But you also told her you did not condemn her. Instead, you showed her an astounding amount of love. And that is the love with which you have loved us. Help us to show that kind of love to others. Whether we're... We've seen from your word that you care about the unborn. We've seen from your word that you that it is a sin to take the life of the unborn as you knit them together in their mother's womb. And we pray that as your people, we might stand against that in our world, but in a way that shows your incredible love. May we always do it in the right way. Whether we get involved in the political lobbying side of things, or whether we're more involved in the you know, fostering or just loving people side of things, or alleviating poverty, helping those in need, whatever it might be, may we do it in a way that shows your love to the world around us. May we remember that there is nothing which you cannot forgive, that there is forgiveness won at the cross for anyone who has had an abortion, so that we too might be willing to forgive and love these people and show them your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.